Thanks for listening to the Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. You can contact the show at twitter.com forward slash dwgroovecast and through Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Drummer's Weekly Groovecast. Good evening. I am warning you right now, if you touch my drums, I will stab you in the neck with a knife. Ain't a fucking. Ain't a fucking. Mom! Lower it. I'm not gonna lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. Are we gonna straighten out? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. Next! Little trouble there. You're rushing. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> What's up? Man, just decided to take a little trip over to your neck of the woods so we could sit down and talk about Mr. Roy Haynes's 93rd birthday. Well, that's a that's a heck of a commitment for old Roy's <laughs> birthday you made. <laughs> well, let me just say this. I've completely and totally foregone the concept or even promise that I would like to play like him. I just want to get to 93 now to be like Roy. I think that's a... A very good adjustment in your mindset, Phil. It it took a it took a whole lot of discipline on my part not to play morning zoo DJ and throw that little clip that everybody loves of Roy into the show where he it he was probably ninety when this happened. It's just a few years ago where he played this drum solo, then got up and started tap dancing on the front of the stage. <laughs> you know the clip I'm talking about. I do. It's amazing. <laughs> he grabs the. Uh, like the saxophone microphone puts it on the floor, starts tap dancing, telling everybody to be quiet. <laughs> it, it makes you think it might not have been a spur of the moment thing. <laughs> you think? He was just like, ah, I'm having a moment of clarity. I'm going to F with these people. It'd be amazing to have a 93-year-old Roy Haynes on the show. Man. You think he'd go Quincy on us or would he just be – Kind of laid back. I hope he would go Quincy. Oh, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's why I bring it up. I'm like putting it out in the universe. You know, Roy, come on and just say what's really on your mind. Man, I came to the realization the other day when I was getting all the information about, you know, Roy's birthday was on the 13th and his 93 that, man, this guy was active in the 40s. Mind-blowing. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. He's in his eighth decade of performance. It's unbelievable, man. I say I played with my best friend for 35 years and people like fall over with a fever and, you know, <laughs> start shaking and thinking like, this dude just, just buried that without even a thought. Eight decades. Eight decades, because he was doing... And I don't need to tell you, man, playing drums is a bitch right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was playing with Bird and those guys back in the 40s. Incredible. So, hats off to Mr. Snap, Crackle, Pop. You know, was he... He hit New York really young? I think so. I think he's from Boston originally. Yeah. And but I think he probably made that track down. Pretty, pretty early on. Yeah, uh, he almost had to if he's been that active. Yeah, that, lo that long he had to be in New York 
as a young man. Boy, and uh, just as a testament to his longevity and just the brilliance that is Roy Haynes, man, you can go back and listen to some of that stuff back in the late 40s, and it still sounds like Roy Haynes. Fresh. <laughs> Isn't that yeah, amazing? Yeah, man. There's, there's some of those guys that just kind of transcend the datedness. They're playing is just incredible now. You know, there's there's certain there's some groove players like that, too, that just sort of a lot of guys in the 60s sounded dated and there's a few that don't it's mind-blowing are, are you doing a perfect segue are you setting me up for today's topic i don't i never do that purposely it just sort of magically <laughs> happens <laughs> well because you know i'm not looking at anything or <laughs> it's a pretty safe but i haven't given this a lot of thought so no well unintentionally or not or intentionally you did a tremendous job for us to segue into our topic for the day and it's another one of these shows that our listeners love they love these artist features but yet we have been a tad bit slack we've had we've gotten busy and had things happen in other shows and interviews that have happened in between and we just haven't had a lot of time to get to it so originally when we were talking about these we were thinking yeah we'll maybe do one of these every like six or seven weeks or whatever well it's been 10 so we'll we'll try to get on these a little bit more frequently as well well Uh, that's sort of placating the fact checkers that like to listen to shows and see how many things we get wrong so if we put them off a few more weeks that's okay i think it's all right because today's show is going to make up for it. it this was this was literally one of those again where i was like i gotta find four tunes good luck i mean i i as of just 15 minutes ago finally marked the last one off that i wasn't gonna do yeah yeah i could go 20 deep on this and be perfectly fine yeah, so the guy we're talking about today is the tremendous, the powerful Steve Jordan. Mm. And boy, we've got some good tracks for you guys to listen to. And I think also um, we're going to we're going to play a few tracks that you guys. I'll be impressed, I should say, if you've heard them before. And then I've got a, I've got a few like the, I, I want to call honorable mentions at the very end of the show that I'm going to throw out there as well for extra credit. A little bit of extra credit homework for you guys to to do your listening to. But Steve Jordan, one of the big-time A-list New York studio musicians. And producers. And producers, correct. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of interesting in it to say now that he is a A-list New York studio musician because it seems like we don't really hear about those guys much anymore. It seems like it's all in Nashville or Los Angeles. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, clearly there there's still guys doing stuff and that but it's not that heralded weekly you know yeah hit record making thing that that it may have been in the past new york's always had an interesting bent on that because in in the popular music realm of session work you know memphis detroit los angeles nashville it's just going to get more play because there's so much more geared to that. Whereas in New York, I don't think it was ever like the biggest priority to be that. You know, when you think about music coming out of there, the jazz influence and the instrumental right. influence was such a bigger part of it. So if you're not into that, you're not going to know the the players maybe as much, or they're not going to be celebrated as much in the in the general population. But 
think it's interesting to note that several of my picks are going to be from that New York instrumental jazz instrumental fusion uh, style. Yeah, and it a makes lot of people, sense. yeah, a lot of people may not be aware that Steve Jordan was active in the late seventies. There's a lot of people think that you know Steve Jordan is a might be a relative newcomer within the last twenty or so years if you're not familiar with some of that stuff he did back in the late seventies and the eighties. But no, yeah. there's a lot of records that he played on that not a lot of people heard. Man, <laughs> you I, know, uh, as as much of a drag as that is, it's really true. If it hadn't been for a couple of my teachers back when I was in school, I would not be aware of them. Right. And it turns out, man, that those are arguably my favorite Jordan recordings. Yeah, there's some stuff, the Steve Kahn stuff, and that that just they weren't records that blew up, you know, right. like some instrumental records do and become iconic, but some really amazingly musical and you know, he's not he's he never what we think of Steve Jordan now, greasy, funky, you know, just musical grooves, but he always had that as a thread in his playing for sure, even though maybe he was stretching a bit more. And I, I always I always thought like they had to pull it out of him probably. You know, I wonder about that because I was just going to mention that in several of those recordings that are my favorites, mm -hmm. that are from that late 70s, early 80s, fusion-esque kind of jazz scene, that, man, he really solos tremendously well. He just he, he plays chops that I guarantee you a lot of people don't realize that he ha at least had, yeah. you know, because you certainly don't think of him in that vein no. anymore. But one of my... Um, examples is actually got a about a thirty or forty five second drum solo over a vamp that we'll talk about. I think and 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 I've, I think I've even heard him say this in an interview. He's like, oh, you know, when I was young and full of piss and vinegar and wanted to blow it out, and I don't care about that anymore. But mm -hmm. he he has a, a a pretty good background educationally. Well, you know, he was into the legit stuff. Mm hmm. He played a lot of jazz stuff. Um, played you know, timpani too. Yeah, and he loved, you know, he loved all the old R and B and and rock and roll things that you clearly know were an influence. But he's he's by way of his more current discography, you know, you might not realize how serious of a background he had, and you know, he wanted to play timpani. He's, he's even said that it's on record that. He was into that, so there's there's some depth in his background and his listening and his uh, tastes that speak to a deeper knowledge of the instrument. And clearly, these solos and earlier fusion records will attest to that. One quick side note, and then I want to talk about his education. Is that have you noticed? And and I'll just name three right off the top of my head that there's a preponderance of rock drummers that have a fairly serious timpani background you got steve jordan kenny aronoff and bozio were all serious timpanists at one time i just thought that was kind of interesting yeah i and, don't really have any <laughs> analysis on that other than <laughs> that it's interesting exactly that's about it yeah. now oh, that's interesting Anyway. Yeah, one thing that he really uh, shares with a lot of the great New York drummers is that 
He graduated from the New York School of Music and Art in 1974, otherwise known as the Fame School. Some of a few of the later guys that were involved in that same school were our buddies Omar Hakeem and Kenny Washington. So pretty good pedigree there. And then I'm sure there are a number of others that if we dug in would would be like, oh, of course he went there. Oh, there's there's a bunch more, man. Those two are just the ones that I always think of. Um, But also, man, Marky Ramon. (laughs) That was not the one I was going to come up with. Oh, okay. Neither was I. Or Bobby Rondinelli. That's my other go-to New York drummer. Or Joe Franco. Um, some na- A name that comes up all the time when we talk about New York drummers that studied with legendary educators. How many times have we talked about guys on this show that have studied with Freddie Waite? And that is also another guy that Steve Jordan worked with. Yeah, he, he he has a far reach, Freddie does. Boy, does he. And I, I, th- yeah. I think, I want to think that that's just results driven. Got to be. You know, like he just became a destination for young drummers because he was churning out students who were really growing in leaps and bounds. Some He had some method that was clearly... Head and shoulders above most guys in New York at the time. Well, he spoke to so many people of different um, backgrounds and that ha- wanted to play different styles of music. That that in itself will tell you that this guy had, like you said, some sort of method and some sort of knack for communication that spoke to young, serious drummers. So, yeah, kudos to Freddie Waits for that. And, and, and you know, as a teacher, he might have decided that magic hang you know like can really reach kids and bring out the potential by just he might be talking about the yankees game you know that kind of stuff like something with freddie there there's clearly a relational thing that happened uh just he's churning out too many guys with their head on straight well-rounded serving the music you know his students seem to to really be so I always think like, man, he had he had something extra besides just pulling out the method book and cracking knuckles. Yeah, and ironically enough, his instruction led him or led Steve to his first major gig, which was not bad. It was about a year, year and a half after he graduated from high school, he became the drummer in the house band for Saturday Night Live. Not, mm. not a bad gig graduating high school. 21 maybe? Somewhere in that ballpark. Amazing. Yeah. He didn't do it very long though, did he? No, he you know, he ended up of course getting, you know, the gigs from that with like the Blues Brothers and eventually kept that association with Paul Schaefer to where he had that five year stint on the Letterman show. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, of course, know him from the Letterman show, but then people who adopted that show later on just realized, you know, Anton Fig had that gig for gosh, thirty years nearly. Mind blowing. But Steve Jordan was the original drummer, and you know I, I I could almost take the late night intro theme with Steve playing drums on it and use that as one of my tracks because it's got such a vibe to it. Oh yeah, you know. So I encourage anyone who well, hasn't I mean, heard you know, that go back and check it out. We have a number of friends who may have watched Letterman for not the content of interview or mm-hmm. snarkiness, but the 
40 seconds coming back into the show of the band blowing, you know, like it was like, it was a moment and a period of time where you were like, Oh man, I, 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 did you, did you hear that? You know, 30 seconds of, you know, coming yeah. back into De Niro's interview where they were playing blah, blah, blah. I was like, that's pretty cool. It, it's, that's incredibly cool. And, and, Steve Jordan had a visual thing going at that time also he that did. was amazing because he he had that white Yamaha drum set with those peisty color sound cymbals elevated and angled that would make Eric Gravatt happy. <laughs> I always wondered if he had to have Yamaha like make special, you know, stands that would get allow him to do them higher. They seemed like they were just in the clouds. And, and then, man, you would hear that signature snare drum. And, I mean, you just knew, man, that, yeah, Steve Jordan is holding court tonight. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing about, one thing that I, you know, the old story of the snowstorm. Yeah, I was going to go in that <clears throat> direction. Go ahead, man. Well, you know, the, the, the story is that Steve was pretty young. And there were a lot of established guys in town working. And the city got blanketed by just a debilitating snowstorm. By the way, just some context. This is the winter of 77. Okay. Yeah. So he would have been about 21, I think. So Steve being the quintessential New Yorker, you know, he doesn't drive. He doesn't, you know, but he's in the city. And there. But a lot of these guys at this point were making good money living out in Connecticut or Westchester or what have you, you know, a mm-hmm. couple in Jersey, maybe they trek into the city to do their sessions, go home to their families and whatever. So this young buck is smack dab in the middle of a city where no one could get anywhere, but life goes on. They got to record. He ended up doing a bunch of sessions that other guys couldn't make and kind of cemented his place in, in uh, the New York session world because he went in and given the opportunity slayed it and that's something we all you know we've either had that opportunity or we should be prepared for that opportunity but he rose to the occasion and it really elevated his status in those circles with producers and writers and all that absolutely because all these tracks that we're going to listen to today were recorded after that and so Mm -hmm. You have to think back linearly that if that didn't happen, we may not be sitting here right now talking about. No, I mean one would one would hope that you would, yeah. but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. Let's listen as to good some as tunes, he is, man. You know? Yeah, sure, let's do it. The first one that I'm going to play is a late '70s uh, track, and it's from one of my favorite John Schofield records. And the title of the album is called Who's Who. And we're going to listen to the title track. And there's a couple things I want to talk about. We're going to listen to actually two short clips. We're going to listen to the intro where we're going to just hear him playing some time. And then we're going to actually hear a clip where he is also soloing over a vamp. Which, again, for those of you who are familiar with Steve but didn't know his side or this side of his playing, this is going to take you by surprise a little bit because you're going to hear a couple things. You're going to get to hear him stretch out. You're going to hear him sound, shockingly enough, a little bit like Steve Gadd. 
I think you'll it's the late 70s in New York. Right. You, you serve yourself well to sound a little like Steve Gadd. There you go. And then one other thing for our gearhead educational pedagogical folks. The intro groove on this tune is the exact groove that David Garibaldi uses for his first system in Future Sounds. I had to throw that in there, John. But I mean, you know, if it's good enough for Steve Jordan and Garibaldi, then yavol. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with it. Let's give a listen to Who's Who. little gadism going there just a little i uh I, about halfway through that solo i was thinking like it's so interesting that right now we are the catalyst for a bunch of young christian hipster drummers minds blowing up the top of their head falling out <laughs> wait that's a guy that plays with john mayer <laughs> i love jo wait what He's like, yeah. And he was absolutely doing it, man, to the hill. Killing it. <laughs> Killing it. He, uh, he, he definitely has uh, a gad influence on that, but there's still like that broken up groove and that just the tight, you know, kick and snare interaction and all that is, is uh, pretty fascinating as well. It's good stuff, man. Who you got for your first pick, John? My first one is a track that I never, ever tire of hearing. And it's by a uh, an amazing saxophonist from St. Louis, which you know I have roots in. But David Sanborn, he uh, had a record called Up Front that Steve is all over. And, and uh, I, I know that Marcus Miller as well. It's a formidable rhythm section to say the least but this track is like it it's such a an incredibly uh, uh to me it's a real signature jordan track and he's kind of leaning on some cross stick stuff and interplay like that and uh some really simple like and of four tom fills 
and then his signature snare drum sound, which we haven't introduced yet, yeah. uh, becomes absolutely defining in this in this track. But this is just him. Like it's aggressive and groovy in all the right ways, and uh, the interplay of uh, his cross stick groove into his snare drum grooves are just intoxicating to me. And what what you said the name of this track is? Snakes. Snakes by David Sanborn. Let's album is called uh Upfront. Let's give it a listen. amazing that that snare drum sound which was the first note Boing. it's just there's steve jordan <laughs> you, yeah you, you could have blindfold me on that one and i've been like oh there's steve yeah now you and i had a quick conversation prior to hit and record that we were talking about what we thought that drum was mm-hmm. and you dropped the hammer of knowledge on me i, I the maybe yeah well, it might have been the screwdriver of knowledge screw, well, <laughs> if, if someone talks if someone corrects me i want to make sure i just didn't beat it with a hammer oh believe me if somebody oh, knows for sure it's gonna you will we will get the email <laughs> my, my my uh guess is that is an eames drum uh, that he had and i think he had more than one yeah. Uh, I know he had a deeper one that he really cranked, and then this one maybe this might be a little smaller diameter, maybe. But he had he was all about some some uh, uh, Eames drums for a while, thick shells, birch thick shells. But Joe McSweeney up there in Boston. Yeah, there's there's some kind of a weird story in there, man. That uh, didn't someone recommend or somebody somebody was playing one of those drums. I, I almost want to say it was Danny Gottlieb. And he had a drum specifically made for Steve. It's coming back to me now. I, I'm probably making something up. And then, of course, we're going to get some yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll find out on that for sure. Yeah. But, yeah, that, that snare drum is legendary. So, And, of course, he's had Yamaha build him his own uh, signature drum, which I'm sure is made to be tuned to that sort of uh, sound. Most definitely. Yeah. That's where that's where it shines. For my next track, John, I'm going to go back to the well of late '70s, early '80s instrumental uh, music, and we're going to go to a pretty famous Brecker Brothers album called Detente. And uh, there's a track that I'm going to play off of this that features Steve, and also ironically features Steve Gad on part of that record as well. But this track is called Squish, and 
one thing I want you to notice about the clip we're going to hear is listen to the phrasing that Jordan uses on his hi-hat. It just fits perfectly with kind of like the rhythmic structure and kind of the melodies and stuff that's going on with it. It's just a it's a great example of Steve's late 70s, early 80s fusion playing. So let's give a quick listen to the Brecker Brothers Squish. I mean, how easy would it have been just to go, I'm just going to play some eighths or sixteenths through this. But Very. Yeah, but then he's like, you know what? I'm hearing something that's going to fit perfectly with this rhythmic structure of this song. So just a, a great track that just grooves like crazy featuring Steve Jordan. That's Brecker Brothers' Squish. That guy's got a bad habit of that, doesn't he? God, I'm telling you. Oh. The next song, my choice. Shine, you're up. You're supposed to set me up, man. You're the point guard. Come on. All right, man. I'm passing the Let's ball. Let's talk about right some now. basketball. For How a while. about those Vols? March Madness, man. man. Vols put a whipping on Wright State yesterday. Yeah, well, some Wright <laughs> States put a whipping on some big programs yesterday too. <laughs> yeah, they did. Woo! Bracket, schmacket. Don't brag to me. If your bracket's correct right now, you're a housewife who knows nothing about basketball. You're saying the, the, the proverbial dart thrower, huh? I think so. <laughs> hey, hey, back to back to Mr. Jordan. He'd probably appreciate our banter. Um, this next track shows some influence that he will just wear on his sleeve and tell you a thousand times that uh, that that this is where his head is. But uh, it's uh, you know you mentioned earlier him doing this Blues Brothers. Yep. Thing. And some just amazing tracks on all that. You know, there's a couple records probably that uh uh really he takes a nod to Al Jackson and the Memphis stuff, like in a big way on most of that. A little bit of the Chicago thing, but this track is uh messing with the kid and it is just straight out of Al's thing. Sounds, feel, vibe, his right hand is and, and that's what I love about Steve, man. Like between the Chicago, uh, you know, uh, Chuck Berry-ish kind of kind of stuff, and then uh, the Memphis stuff. He's a, a fine student of that, and this track shows that, especially the Memphis influence that I love. So we're gonna listen to a clip of the Blues Brothers playing messing with the kid and this is this is one of the live recordings that they did so correct let's check it out what's this out here there's a whole lot of talk the people say they try to put the kid yeah yeah tell me what you did you can call it what you want 
section to play with in that band yeah they they might have been recording really all the originals familiar <laughs> with the memphis vibe is yeah. what i'm trying to get at they have intimate knowledge to the tracking of many classic memphis songs they i think they sat and watched Woo! no wait they sat and played man i'm telling you Got a little Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper action going on there. Not bad, huh? No, that that's some. Uh, I, Steve is just a perfect fit on that. And and like I said, man, just talk about capturing everything that is Al Jackson. There's a m- bunch of tunes that he does it on. And it's not not just that. That's that infamous blues rumba that Al Jackson just destroyed on some of those tracks like Crosscut Saw mm-hmm. by Albert King. And just as a side note regarding his stint with the Blues Brothers, man, I read a brief snippet where he was talking about his time with them. And being a student of the early uh, R&B, Motown, stack stuff, he said that when he first listened to some playbacks of some of those recordings of him with the Blues Brothers, that he was shocked that he didn't like what he was playing because he didn't think it was faithful enough to the Al Jackson part. Like in particular, the one that he was talking about was soul man that he was like, man, I I listened back to some of those earlier recordings, man. I just shake my head that I didn't do enough homework on those from the standpoint of being loyal and faithful to those parts. And how many times have you heard not only of course him say that, but us say that also about, you know, study those parts be faithful to him and there's a primo example of a guy that went back to the shed he had already been on saturday night live man and then this guy went back to the shed and perfected those parts man that's quite a testament to this guy no question he is he is a fan a student and a purveyor of the talent to deliver that a lot of people kind of phone that stuff in yeah, with Steve, you can tell he's just digging in deep. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys that's gotten to the point now to where when he goes out and does live gigs, and I know this is the fact with the, the John Mayer group when he goes out with them and also with Eric Clapton, that on tunes that I suppose that he recorded, but especially tunes that he's covering, you know, that were recorded by other drummers, he takes the time in between songs to occasionally change snare drums so that he'll be faithful even to those recorded sounds mm-hmm. and the feels of it. So kudos. Awesome. Yeah. There'll be no claw miking of those snare drums, my friend. <laughs> the next one I want to talk about. I, I John, I I toiled on this one, man. It was between this and another track. But I'm going to choose this track because of the circumstances that actually surrounded the gig. And what I mean by that, it's by a little old St. Louis guy. And no, not you, John Charlton, not you, Dave Johnstone, and not you, Kevin Giannino. I mean, undoubtedly, there'll be tribute <laughs> concerts be, for us, but it's <laughs> eventually not this somewhere one. down the road. But it's the dirty old man of Chuck Berry. 
Um, he was in. Steve was involved with uh, Keith Richards and the expensive winos when they decided they were going to get together and put together an all-star band that would really study the music of Chuck Berry, give him an all-star band that was well rehearsed, that really knew the music, was going to really do that old the music opposite justice. of every gig Chuck's done in the last fifty years. Exactly, and. To say that there were trials and tribulations surrounding that gig and that Chuck Berry fought them every step of the way, that's euphemistic at best because it's well known that Chuck Berry punched out Keith Richards somewhere in the middle of this entire thing, hit him right in the nose. Uh, But yeah, I chose this track for all those reasons. And on top of that, he just plays a great shuffle, man. Well... You know, back to what we talked about, really digging in and getting the middle of stuff. This, probably even more than the Al Jackson stuff. Mm -hmm. You have to. Steve did his homework down to drums and cymbals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mind-blowing. I don't share the story a whole lot um, just because it's like, look at me, but... I was blessed to go to one of those rehearsals for that show. And somehow figured out how to get in the wings right behind Steve. He's kind of off to stage left. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting back there. And man, besides the obvious of nailing these parts as authentic as they come, what was fascinating to me was he was, I think he's, he's probably playing twice as loud as anyone who recorded those records would. Yeah, it was like it was just so powerful and so right that I just I really I became an instant fan of Steve from there. I was aware of him, but when I saw that from 15 feet away, it was just it was so shockingly good and so shockingly respectful that I've I've never, ever had him out of my brain since. Um. And I, I unfortunately didn't get to see Chuck punch Keith. Was was Chuck there during that rehearsal? Yes. Yeah, he was there. Um, only for a short period of time did I see him when he came out and, and did something. They they were doing some run-throughs and technical stuff, but we were able to stay for a couple songs. But then uh, I, I don't. We kind of got the feeling we should go. <laughs> a little tension in the room. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> you know and maybe we were part of the tension like get out of here you know but well now that we've built this up <laughs> let's give a listen to steve jordan playing with chuck berry and then keith with keith richards and the expensive winos this is no particular place it's not actually to go i'm sorry you're gonna get called out on this i am it's not the expensive but winos. this is gonna be like the third or fourth time then we're gonna get called out on the show that show was a hand-picked band I was like Spampanato was playing bass, right? Joey, who was uh, in NRBQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, Johnny Johnson, of course. Yeah, that was Chuck's old piano player. Yeah. Uh, Bobby Keys was the playing saxophone player, yeah. And uh, Keith and Robert Cray played quite a bit that day That in that in on that. Julian show. Lennon's on there, too. Yeah, that's just guests. But yeah. Robert played quite a bit more than yeah. – he sang a couple things, but – that band was kind of handpicked, Jordan, and we're gonna go back. So cut, really, cut all this just, out. We're gonna edit it. <laughs> are we really? <laughs> no. 
You have to. You have to. You have <laughs> to take your lumps here. Yeah, I'm taking them. It was Stephen Key. That's the only expensive wine I was on. Gotcha. Gig. All right, so here we go. This is no particular place to go. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel. I stole a kiss with a turn of a mile. My curiosity running wild. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. Riding along in my automobile. I said she's tell her the way I feel. So I whispered softly and sincere. She leaned and put something in my ear. Cruising more and driving slow. With no particular place to go. See why I picked that? Yeah. That's right as rain. (laughs) You know, I remember, the other thing I remember when I was there, uh, I saw him riding the rim of the bass drum. He had a big 26-inch bass drum on some of that stuff, and I didn't know any of that then. Mm -hmm. And boy, I I had a lesson in 50s Chicago rock and roll for sure, just watching Steve. So it goes without saying that if you like what you heard here and then you like these crazy stories that John was telling, you absolutely owe it to yourself to go watch the documentary called Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. There is so much good stuff. Incredible. In that documentary. I mean, and the tension that we talked about in these stories is, I mean, you can tell from the drop that, man, these guys, there was massive tension in the room. Everything from Chuck getting upset with guys touching his equipment to not liking the way certain songs are being rehearsed at certain tempos or certain things are being played incorrectly, according to Chuck. <laughs> There's a good one where Keith oh, yeah. is like telling him no because he wants to change keys. It, it's in the concert. It's like early in the concert. Yeah. He's like, no, 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 no. And Chuck's like, I heard another good story from uh, a, a reliable source that they had a they had a boogie like down in like the third sub basement of the Fox in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. Yeah. That basically was going to be Chuck's sound because they couldn't get a good sound from his uh, stage amp. Right. And I, the rumor is he didn't know. <laughs> God knows if he did. That yeah. show probably never would have happened. But they mic'd an amp like in like two stories down in some brick room with a locked door. <laughs> I, I, for the for the sake of this story, I really hope it's true. <laughs> I, I can't imagine it's not. Yeah, Chuck's crap. I played with Chuck. His, his stuff sounds like ass. Oh yeah, horrible. Yeah. Well, you can tell he's out of tune, man. On the clip oh. that I uh, just played, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't care. Yeah, John, what you got for our next uh, song? Uh, the next one is uh, a more of a rock and roll kind of thing. That that side of Steve's playing that I love that is a little heavier handed and just a little more open. Um, and it's from a, some up and coming singer songwriter. And the song is Steve McQueen. I think there's some St. Louis, uh, roots there too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know we're rambling, but this is the time to ramble. St. Louis is, uh, you know, the home of Chuck Berry and Miles Davis. Think about that for a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm, think, thinking, think I'm, of, I'm thinking. I'll, I'll I mean, wait. I'll, I'll I mean, wait. I mean, okay. if <laughs> J.S. Bach is the only one I can, other person I can think of that is that influential on the genre. But it's like, 
He wasn't from St. Louis, though. No, I know. I'm just saying if he was, then it would give you an idea of how influential those two are. Sure. But, uh, yeah, St. Louis, there, there's, a, there's a lot more connection to that town in a lot of music than you think. You don't have to convince me. I know you know. I know, yeah. You heard all that music on the crappy speakers at the Checker Dome. <laughs> we were proud of our music and played it. <laughs> yes, I did. That's mo- those those. It, it, when you were in the now here we're going in another uh, hijack <laughs> direction. That that arena freaked me out from the standpoint of claustrophobia. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you got on those lower seats, when you went out, they had these little tiny walkways mm-hmm. man that were that had low ceilings man that that got jammed up after those games and it was terrifying awful terrifying. Well, even, even more terrifying is that upper level that literally the seats it felt like you were just they were like straight up and down yeah you're walking up there and if you're sitting in a seat you felt like you could fall 500 feet down yeah but uh yeah, I used to play in a club right down the street from there, and I had essentially a PA blowing in my ear mm-hmm. with no protection. And I think the Checker Dome speaker's uh, public address system might have done more damage to my <laughs> hearing than that PA in my, you know, basically duct taped to my head. That's good. God, I go back stuff. and I think about that. It's like, oh, it was just miserable. So anyway, we somehow got to the Checker Dome. <laughs> you know. What's your track? <laughs> Cheryl Crow's Steve McQueen. Let's give it a listen. It's a bad old rock and roll jam. I don't think they used a click on that. <laughs> Probably not. But it's it does. so amazingly great and slinky and fat. And I was going to say this. I think that track is the first one that we played in this show that highlights that side. Yeah. Of Steve Jordan. That, Absolutely. That we think of today. Mm-hmm. And our last two tracks that we're going to uh, talk about and listen to come from the same record and also highlight that same kind of what we'll call the modern era of Steve Jordan. Yeah, encapsulates where his head is now for sure. However, though, they're pretty diametrically opposed in just the sound and the feel. Most definitely. And the track that I chose is from the John Mayer album called Continuum, and it's waiting on the world to change. And it's got the signature Jordan snare, but he plays a a very signature style of groove that goes along with it too. It's a two measure groove where in the second bar, it's got a displaced backbeat kind of on the end of four. And he creates a little bit of a pseudo shuffle groove on it as well. And it's right from the drop, right from the get go. He plays it and keeps it pretty much all the way through the tune, except on the bridge. 
So let's give a listen to John Mayer's Waiting on the World to Change. figured it out how about that ride symbol i was talking earlier with you about this Mm -hmm. how his symbol sound has become kind of definitive and definitive in a in the modern pop world and that he he was one of the first guys to go to like those this larger warmer darker thing where it's like kind of like is it a crash is it a ride and Mm -hmm big hi-hats that were just darker and mushier. And there, there's a perfect example. Like that ride symbol is kind of like, what is it? Yeah. Is it okay? Is it a, you know, like it's not pingy. It's not, I mean, it, his playing has so much vibe because of the symbol choices now. You know, something that I think has to weigh in on the choices for the symbols is that with him doing as much production as he's done over the past 20 or so years. A lot of great producers like cymbal sounds that blend more than cut. Mm -hmm. They're much easier to mix, much easier to balance, much easier to EQ. And I would have to think that his production sensibilities maybe led him in that direction as much as his drumming sensibilities. No doubt. I would, I would, I would agree. And he would probably tell you as much. Um, That's the thing about his sound that, now is becoming very, very popular, but it's almost like you feel a symbol as much as you hear it. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that is fascinating. And you, I don't need to tell you, trying to find those are really hard. But a lot of his stuff, like even on his instructional video, you feel his symbols as much as you hear them. Yeah. There's, there's a vibe to them that isn't like clearly defining what it is or, you know, like, our typical description of symbols they kind of it's sort of elusive in that sense yeah and you know it could also be a direct response to his early days of let's take the letterman show for example we were talking about he used those peisty color sound symbols which anybody will tell you those were bright tinny symbols separated bells on the rides very cutting hats that sort of thing it's almost like he's like i i've done that Ready to move on. Yeah, here's here's the next phase of Jordan. I'm going to do this. That's totally different symbol sound from the but top down. I kind of feel like we've all done that on some level. I think bright symbols and, you know, I know everyone that I know that's older is just like, oh, God, anything bright, get it away from me. My, my whole ears thing, morph into that and draw to that. My whole thing are those separated bells on ride symbols, man. I just, I cannot play those things that sound like a laser. Mm-hmm. I just... It, they are just the most strident sounding instruments, man. I just cannot dig on those 
those symbols have that real high-pitched, piercing, separated bell. I'll readily admit I wore one of those out before. Yeah. What was it? Ping ride or something, rock ride. Oh, yeah. When I was young. Uh-huh. Just wore that bell out. Wasn't one of those mega bell Zs? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I've never been that crazy. So, John, what is your track from this album? Uh, polar opposite in sound and feel and vibe is uh, a track called that track called Vultures, mm-hmm. and I'm always fascinated with this uh, because it's it's a it's a difficult tempo in a lot of ways to play. You it's know, in the it's like, yeah. Is it a ballad? Is it a rock tune? Uh, some of like Petty's tunes have some of that too. Like you could play a ballad at eighty, or you could play a rock and roll tune at eighty, and how you approach it. And the sounds you use and the vibe and all that becomes very, very influential in that track becoming useful. So in this one, um, we go back to, I've always pictured this uh, when I, I talk a lot about motion and, and yeah. that this is one where I, I almost feel he's like, he's like pushing the hi-hats, like an even eighth, but pushing the shank stick into it. Mm-hmm. And then the snare drum is just this big, fat, like you always describe it as snares hanging off and half the lugs detuned and all that. And that's where this is at. And he just gets in a zone with this thing and it's magic, man. Like, it also, it sounds like those 17 inch hats to oh, don't you know, where he's taken something like two Piesty crashes. Right. Mm-hmm. And he pairs those things together to make a, a sloshy dark set of hats. No question. So there's definitely that between those hats, the bigger, darker hats and that pushed. Yeah. Wrist, you know, straight armed kind of pushed eighth note thing. Yeah. He just kills it on this. So let's take a listen to John Mayer's vultures. be my imagination but i swear to you man i can hear the snares rattling on the bottom of that drum i'm, I'm just so taken like a little school girl with the feel <laughs> i don't even notice <laughs> i can see the snares hanging and just <laughs> vibrates seeing those loose heads on that snare drum giving and, and bouncing back i just see little hearts that's all i see I love that. I love that feel, man. I, I'm watching. I'm watching hearts bubble over your head, man. Yeah, I'm like an, I'm table. like an emoji right now. <laughs> that, that that he plays that as well as anyone. It's just so. And you know, as a producer, man, he he. It, it's hard to question any sound he gets on any track. It's always just so much detail and thought behind it. Yeah, and I really appreciate that. John, before we get out of here, Mm -hmm. I want to indulge myself for 30 seconds 
and I want to mention a few songs that didn't didn't make the cut for this show. But well, you should. Yeah, but they should. They're they're my honorable mentions. And I'm just going to give you the artist and I'll give you the um album title. And the ones I want you to check out. Check out a Sunny Fortune record called With Sound Reason. It's a another one of those records from the late 70s. And yes, it is Sunny Fortune the saxophone player. The guys that you are thinking that's a free jazz <laughs> saxophonist or that played with Elvin Jones's Jazz Machine, it is that guy, but he did some fusion records in the 70s. And uh Steve plays on that record called With Sound Reason. One of my personal favorite records that you have heard me use several times as joiner music and as outro music on this show, and it pained me to no end to not include it, is a John Schofield record from the early 80s called Electric Outlet. Overall, that might be my favorite record that Steve Jordan has ever played on. Wow. I mean, it is brilliant. And it has to do also with the compositions on this record are fantastic. It's during what I would call the most fertile era of the Schofield fusion writing. Love it. And then the last one I want to mention is one from the late 80s. It's from uh, uh, the pianist that plays with Pat Metheny's group, Lyle Mays. He did, or he's done, I should say, a few solo records. He did one back in the late 80s called Street Dreams. And Steve is not the only drummer on there, but there's a track that he plays a shuffle on called Possible Straight. And he's using the Jordan signature snare, and it's the loudest thing in the world. I mean, it just dominates and takes over on that track. So that's just a few honorable mentions. And I'm sure our listeners feel free on our Facebook page to to throw your favorite Steve Jordan tracks on there because, like I said, there's just this show we could do eight parts on it and we're already at an hour. And so, I mean, my gosh, all these are all good. There's no wrong. Share away. Anything else you want to add to this show? Speak of our great Steve Jordan love and brothership, brotherhood, fellowship. Um, I feel pretty good about what I had to say <laughs> that Steve Jordan is a hero and you should listen to more of him. All right, folks. So with that in mind, make sure you go by our website. We're at drummersweeklygroovecast.com. There at the website, you can listen to every one of our shows. You can stay in touch with us through our contact form. You can just read a little bit about me, a little bit about John and myself. We got videos on there. Shoot, we got everything. You can manage your subscription. You can always check us out on social media, which is also accessible from that site. We've got our Facebook account. We've got our Twitter account. And, John, have you noticed I've been trying to pimp that Instagram account? We're Drummers Weekly Groovecast at Instagram. All right. I'm just trying, man. I don't know what I'm doing on there. My wife gets on there and adds hashtags. And I'm like, okay. And she hasn't really explained what's going on with that yet, but... We're making the Instagram thing happen. We're getting some some rather, hashtags. Yeah, hashtags. Thing that hangs off your skin. Yeah, I cut them off with the, the scissors. Dude, you're hardcore. <laughs> I would, but I'm on blood thinners. <laughs> and then the last thing, guys, we love it when you swing by our iTunes page and leave us a short review. We haven't talked very much about that recently, but for those of you folks who subscribe to us through iTunes, or even if you just have an iTunes account and you access our show through the other normal forms of, of, uh, of podcast, swing by our homepage 
in iTunes and leave us a short written review. It helps us a lot and it helps other people who are looking for drumming podcasts and music podcasts find us just a little bit easier. That's going to do it for us, man. I thoroughly enjoy doing these shows. Yeah, man. Showing some respect to respect-worthy individuals is never a bad thing. You got that right, man. We got a list of them that we need to uh, start thinking about doing. Okay. (laughs) Twist my arm, right? All right. All right, folks. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll see you every Monday with brand new shows, every first and third Thursday with Accountability Thursday. Until then, we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.